welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today we're talking art, the Baltimore Museum of Art specifically. Founded in 1914, it's a gem of a museum that recently pledged to do better by its community with a commitment to diversity and equity through structural change as well as initiatives and exhibitions. Here to talk with us about these changes is board trustee and executive committee member Kwame Webb. Welcome, Kwame. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk about your role with the Baltimore Museum of Art and how you're doing in this moment and all this wackiness that we are living through right at this moment. I hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. I've been blessed to be employed through this whole event. Uh, The same for my wife. Um, My family is in good health. Both of our families are starting to get vaccines. So um, I thankfully don't have much to complain about, but I think we can all agree um, psychologically, this has been a very trying period. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And are you in Baltimore right now or outside or? Uh, so I live in the city. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't know how well you know the city, but my neighborhood is just south of the Inner Harbor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time in Baltimore. Okay. Mostly at Johns Hopkins. Unfortunate. Yeah. The, 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 the hospital side or the school side? The hospital side. Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear well, that. But world-class healthcare, so I guess that's the exactly. flip side. That is the flip side. But the Inner Harbor is lovely, and always getting to stay down there is always wonderful. I have a lot of friends who live in that area as well. But yeah, Baltimore is such an interesting city for so many reasons, because yeah. you run the gamut of income diversity in terms of what the city itself represents, and... When you look at the diversity of the city as well, in microcosm, in the middle of everything that's been going on this year, trying to balance, I would assume that the Baltimore Museum of Art has felt like it has to kind of weigh its own responsibilities differently in responding to the moment in a way that I don't know that the country has really ever woken up in the way that it has this year. Or in 2020, I should say. But we're continually waking up in 2021, (laughs) as it turns out. We thought we were done with that, but no. (laughs) I can't remember the name of those uh, those action movies, 2020 part duh. Is that that what we call this? (laughs) Yeah, I think that is what we call this. For sure. Oh, man. But. I already recorded an intro where I talk about the Baltimore Museum of Art is a little gem of a museum that is doing the right thing and making a commitment to do better by the community in terms of pledging to better BIPOC representation, etc. Before we get into anything else, could I ask you to describe your role within the museum and how it's continually expanding over time? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny the the bit about continually expanding, but I will I will give you my current title. So I am currently the secretary of the board of trustees. With that, I'm a member of the executive committee, the investment committee, the public engagement committee, 
And I am also on one of the um, acquisitions committees. Um, so we divide the world and the arc of art in different ways. But the uh, acquisition committee I'm on is art of the Americas, uh, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Islands. And how has it expanded over time? What did you start as? What got you involved in the BMA to begin with? I've always had a great love of art. When I was a, a college student, I volunteered at the uh, art museum on campus. I technically, my minor is in Hispanic studies, but I was one class away from a art history minor. Um, actually, when I went to go get my MBA and realized that, you know, I'd really taken enough business classes that I wanted, I actually decided to just go ahead and take a impressionist and post-impressionist uh, art class. So, Number one, just a genuine love of art. So taking that a little bit further, when I recently relocated here in 2017, this is my second time living in Baltimore, I was really just casually having a conversation with a colleague about art. And I guess she had had a number of these conversations with me. And she said, you know, seems like you really like art. And my profession is that I'm a portfolio manager for an investment company here in Baltimore. So it started off with, well, why don't you join our investment committee? We're always looking for people who have uh, different insights for various asset classes. Um, and so I was technically a non-voting member. I was really just there to provide perspective. And as uh, voting members who were also trustees of the board got more familiar with me, uh, my name was put forward to join the bigger board. And Thus is how I, I now, now find myself, you know, as the secretary on, and on various committees that I've outlined. It's incredible because the museum itself, clearly, just in terms of the number of committees that you've outlined, there's so much work that is done <laughs> by the museum that is almost really difficult to encapsulate. I can just say from my perspective as a teacher, I've always deeply appreciated Everything that I've seen, even not living in Baltimore, but being a teacher in the Virginia area, I've appreciated the wonderful teacher's guides for collections and selected exhibitions, as well as art to go and virtual resources that seem perfectly suited to the needs of the pandemic right now, even. I just wonder... In terms of the outreach that you do, it must go way beyond that. I'm sure there's far more than I'm necessarily aware of. But how is the outreach mission changing to include more engagement from the community, including Baltimore's own Black communities during the pandemic? Yeah, so number one, I, I just want to offer a heartfelt thank you for, for the compliments you have about our online resources. I know the board, which I see uh, very frequently, albeit via Zoom, works really hard to make sure that we're responsive to our communities. And I definitely know that our staff and our volunteers uh, go far, far above and beyond what I see. And so that's, that's really high praise. So, but to, to answer your question, you know, it's kind of funny. There's a very common theme among older cultural institutions. Um, and, and any, I would say most cultural institutions in this country, if they are over a hundred years old, they have this, they have a very similar background story. 
They were founded 100 years ago to cater to largely middle to upper income white audiences. Um, now, number one, I think you would struggle to think of how many major cities have a majority white population. That's that's kind of the first place you start. But then if you look at where Baltimore is today, the city is greater than 60 percent black, I think maybe about 30 percent white. Our visitorship has gotten better, but I can assure you that it, it probably very much reflects the patronage that it was designed for 100 years ago. And we we realize that's a real problem. Um, and I would probably say that was really addressed maybe about five or six years ago. I would also note the other issue you'll see with a lot of these uh, older organizations is that their visitorship is, is just older. Um, and they, they really haven't done a good job of refocusing for today. Um, I, I would never want to describe what we do as being as lowly as in the entertainment business. But what I also like to highlight to people is 30 years ago, I, I can right now, I can sit down and I can watch Netflix, Hulu, I have Curiosity Stream. <laughs> it's on my mobile phone. <laughs> it's on my iPad tablet. So we've, we've really tried to recognize the moment and be responsive to our audiences. So so really to get deeper into your question, there are a number of things we did, but kind of the two more important things that I would highlight are first, we we rewrote our mission. And so I'm just going to go ahead and read the quote for you here. The Baltimore Museum of Art connects art to Baltimore and Baltimore to the world, embodying a commitment to artistic excellence and social equity in every decision from art presentation, interpretation, and collecting to the composition of our board of trustees, staff, and volunteers, creating a museum welcoming to all. So a lot of work went into creating that mission, but it's kind of like every great endeavor, uh, you have to mix actions with words. And so the next step beyond that was creating a strategic plan. Off the top of my head, I think the strategic plan is probably like 50 or so uh, pages. Um, we also have a strategic plan oversight committee that I'm involved with, and that gets into very explicitly tracking how is our board getting more diverse, very explicitly tracking how is our staff getting more diverse. Same thing with our collection. We have some upcoming diversity, equity, inclusivity, and accessibility training coming up for our staff. But then also to your point of how are we also engaging our community? So. I mentioned that I'm on the public engagement committee. We actually have an advisory panel made up of a number of Baltimoreans. And so that would include liaisons to the Baltimore City Public Schools, faith leaders, um, local artists and others. I would also note that we have a very strong partnership with an organization called the Green Mount West Community Center. That was a partnership kicked off by the artist Mark Bradford, and that continues to go strong. And then lastly, I would say we've tried to do a lot to, quote unquote, meet people where they're at, because we realize not everybody can, you know, go out of their way to come to us. So in Baltimore, there's um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lexington Market. I encourage people mm -hmm. to look it up. It's being redeveloped right now. Um, but that's kind of like a big place for people who otherwise might live in what could best be described as a food desert to be able to go ahead and get access to food and that sort of thing. So we actually have an outpost there. 
um, where we do a lot of arts. I know we debuted a movie by Solange there uh, a year or two ago when when things were better. And then we also do uh, events with our Green Mount West Community Center partners. So in terms of doing all of these things outside, engaging other communities, you're also doing a lot of exhibitions that are exploring specific themes within African or indigenous art. And I'd love to talk about A Perfect Power, Motherhood in African Art. I understand this was an exhibit that was near and dear to your heart as well. What can you tell me about the conception of the exhibit? Yeah, so it's I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, this pandemic has been just a, a terrible, a terrible toll uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually on so many people. From a museum standpoint, one of the things that's fascinating to contemplate is a lot of our shows, they're coming from somewhere and they're going somewhere. So as the country has gone through varying waves of opening and closing, opening and closing, that is like completely obliterated our our show schedule. But what I will highlight is specific to 2020, our museum leadership, they there were two things that they sort of anchored on. One was with this whole idea of what have we done in terms of diversity of the collection? Uh, regrettably, I want to say only 4% of our art is produced by women. That number has gone up over the last five or six years. I want to say maybe if you were to look more recently, acquisitions are closer to 20%, but realizing we weren't doing enough. So, the staff came up with this idea of Vision 2020 to mark the 100 and uh, 100 year anniversary of women's rights to vote in the United States. And so the plan was we would only buy art by women or, or female identifying artists. Um, we would also only feature shows by women or female identifying artists. And so. Um, two that I would sort of highlight. So the first one you mentioned was A Perfect Powerhood. Um, so that show was put on by Kevin Turbala, our very uh, talented department head of uh, arts of uh, the Americas, Africa, Asia, Pacific Islands. I kind of laugh because we just say triple API because it's such a mouthful. So when, so all the curators, they said, you know, how am I going to live up to Vision 2020? So what he did was that he decided to pull 40 objects. It's a mix of objects from our collection, works from private collections. And basically, he just said, let's look at how artists have demonstrated and represented the power of African mothers and use maternal imagery to signal moral, cultural and spiritual authority. And so it, it was, you know, it was it was. It's always fascinating when people say, let's think about alternative narratives or or how we compose works. And so one of the works that really struck me that I don't think was a story that would have been told outside of this this exhibit was, um, and unfortunately, because I haven't been in the museum for so long, I can't give you the name of the exact object, but conceptually what it was, it was a, it was basically a piece worn by young boys as they transition into adulthood. But all the iconography on it was affiliated with being a pregnant woman. And this idea that a woman gave birth to you 
and the, and a woman gives birth to you into adulthood. And I think, I think, you know, outside the context of that show where it's like, let's talk about how empowering women are, how empowering femininity and motherhood are. I don't really think you could have told that story in a more complete or interesting narrative. That's a powerful image. Yeah. And, and if I could just uh, mention one more from the standpoint of what are we also doing to recognize uh, work of indigenous peoples? We also, and I'm, I'm kind of highlighting these two because I know with all the openings and closings, these are two that I am definitively aware are open when, when the museum is open and accessible. Um, but the other one is uh, Stars and Stripes. And that one is um, put on by our curator, Darian Turner. Um, and it's looking at how women of the Lakota have appropriated the American flag to carry out their various cultural practices. I can't recall the exact law, but there was an actual law that forbade their ability to do their ancient cultural practices. But by interweaving the American flag into many of their garments, their wares, uh, saddle work, they were able to continue to pursue those items, events, and practices that were so instrumental to their culture. Oh, wow. What a creative way to look at the prohibition of everything. And what an unusual way to look at your American identity as well within the context of that exhibit. I love that. I think that's really fascinating. And especially, we spend a lot of time talking to indigenous creators on this podcast as a whole. And one of the themes that comes up constantly is this conflict between being an American, but also being at odds with whatever the government proclaims American to be. That's a perfect metaphor for that. I think so. And I wondered, what are you seeing as different conversations that you're seeing about art in this refocused vision at this moment? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mentioned I'm on so many committees, um, but the truth is I don't get to see it all. One of my more interesting memories, and I can't recall if it was early 2020 or or late 2019, we had a show called Generations, and it was about abstract art produced by largely Black Americans or, or people of the African diaspora. And so one of the real telling moments for me, the collector who had assembled a lot of these works is a woman named Pamela Joyner. She lives in California. And so we did a panel with her Nicole Hannah-Jones, who uh, did the 1619 Project for the New York Times, and Zoe Charlton, who's a artist living, working, practicing here in Baltimore. And one of the things that I just thought was fascinating was we got to a Q&A segment of this discussion, and people just stood up and thanked them. They thanked them so much for assembling this show. I remember a young Black woman stood up and she was like, I never thought I could go into an American museum and see myself on the walls. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for giving me that opportunity. Back in the fall, one of our trustees uh, 
uh, Lisa Harris, she she wrote an op-ed to the Baltimore Sun where she talks about growing up in Baltimore in this in Baltimore Museum of Art. Growing up did not feel like it was an institution that speaks to her, cares about her and talking about how she has since joined the board because she loves the path and the mission that we are setting forth on. So I would just highlight those anecdotes to, you know, say that it feels like something special is going on here. And in terms of your own experience with the art, in terms of your personal resonance with it, how has it changed your connection to art as well? That's an interesting question. So I grew up in Washington, D.C., going to the National Gallery of Art. And honestly, I, I would really struggle to think of maybe, maybe Gordon Parks, maybe some Gordon Parks photography I would have seen. But I would really struggle to think of where in that institution I saw myself, quote unquote, my people. And so it it is very empowering to go into this museum that has made it a real priority to spotlight artists of the African diaspora. So I would, I would certainly say my interest in art, who I think is relevant in art has shifted a lot. Unfortunately, this isn't a show that we can take credit for, but the Phillips is doing a show. I want to, I think it's called riffs and reflections and it talks about, Black American artist in the quote unquote European tradition. And so really what it was showing was the same way you had people like James Baldwin going to France. There was actually a very extensive dialogue of Black American artists practicing in post-impressionist, impressionist manner that has been completely eliminated, overlooked by my, my traditional understanding of art history. But I would say because there is greater emphasis and receptivity to telling a more wholesome, complete story than you might have seen 20, 30 years ago, that's now being brought to light such that people like that young lady could say, I now walk into this institution and I see myself here. I understand where I belong. I understand where I am in America, because I think probably 20, 30 years ago, that was a lot less clear. It's very strange, too, that it's still such an ongoing process everywhere in America. I still live in the Washington, D.C. area, and it's still startling to me on a regular basis to think about the artworks in the National Gallery or even the Hirshhorn and the relative lack of diversity there. But I love that the museum is trying to forge different kinds of connections in these different ways. And I wanted to also ask, what about the structural changes at the museum? You started to talk about how you have really worked to cement exactly what the changes are in terms of the representation within the staff, etc. But are there other kinds of structural changes happening at the museum? in terms of maybe making it less hierarchical or creating some sort of system for more cooperative systems of change? Yeah, so you're, you're honestly touching on a number of things. From the standpoint of diversity, 
there are clearly a number of laws and books where you don't have quotas and that sort of thing, but there are no prohibitions on tracking metrics and reporting metrics mm-hmm. and, and aspiring for higher diversity. So I would say, you know, that's that's big change, number one, and we're all trying to drive that higher. In terms of hierarchy, our current director and chief curator, they, oh gosh, they they operate in what's called a matrix structure. So rather than saying XYZ person is the team leader, it's a lot more saying who brings what skill set to the team to try to percolate a greater diversity of opinions. I think, I think when you look at something like an art museum, a person sort of gets in there very young and they don't really have any agency until they're in their fifties or sixties and really trying to, you know, not let those talents and contributions get, get wasted so early in a person's career. So I probably say those are some of the actions that were kind of structurally doing to, to upset traditional hierarchies and and drive towards a more socially equitable institution. And in terms of accessibility, is that another aspect that the museum is working toward as well? I mean, I know it's hard to be on all fronts at all times, but it it is and and it's one of those things where almost I'm almost embarrassed to admit my own ignorance. When they mentioned DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusivity, accessibility training, I was like, well, what's the A? And they're like accessibility. And it's kind of like, how do you have somebody who is impaired in one of their senses go into an art museum and have a fulfilling experience? And and I was like, I was like, wow, you know, yeah, if you're trying to be responsive to your community, that's like. That should be that should be everybody's priority. It should be we we view ourselves as accountable to our community, but because it's not a lens that I regularly encountered, I I wasn't as aware of it. But that is part of our training program for I, I can't recall it's going to go over a number of years. Um, but but that is that is definitely on the map, and I'm very excited that it is on the map for us. Do you have people coming in to advise on the accessibility side and people coming in to advise on the indigenous representation? Yeah, so I would have to refer you to the staff to understand what they've done so far on the accessibility front. There's, of course, of course, things like the Americans with Disabilities Act out that they would have been complying with, but as any great institution, we should be aiming to exceed what's required by the law. So I would have to refer you to, to the staff to understand what they've done. But definitely, we, we originally had a plan announced in the fall that we were going to fund five years of DEIA training. The funding plan has gotten a little mixed up, but the goal to go forward with that training remains. I think it's just the funding sources needs to be reallocated, I guess, is the best way to put it. But I do know that that is going to be a priority going forward. I actually wanted to pivot, though, to ask about a somewhat more exciting question, which is the bequest from John Waters. (laughs) I just wondered if you could share some information about that bequest, because 
I have been chomping at the bit to actually get to Baltimore and see that. But obviously, in pandemic times, that's going to take a while. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there, there are certain board proceedings I can't can't comment on. But I would say we did a big show with him maybe two or three years ago. It really injected a type of energy you traditionally don't see in an art museum. I think we did like a 24-hour film-a-thon with his films. People were posting uh-huh. on Twitter and Facebook. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. I, I can't recall if John's in his late 60s or early 70s, but, you know, the fact that you and I are age peers in our late 30s, the fact that we have a lot of energy and enthusiasm about him, I would certainly tell you when we had that exhibit going, um, the demographics definitely skewed younger than John. So, it's it's exciting to see, you know, just a new I, I don't think you would think of the traditional John Waters fan as a person who's like, oh, I want to go see uh, Matisse and Degas and Renoir. But if if that can be an avenue for them to uh, get a, that arts education or a larger arts education, that's really exciting. And John, of course, being one of the biggest cultural exports from Baltimore, we are completely, tremendously pleased and enthused that he's decided to make us the repository of his creative works, as a number of his creative works, not, uh, as well as a number of um, artworks that he's collected by other artists over the span of his life. And I'm sure you saw there's some other fun details, like we're going to name a bathroom after him, and yep, that sort yep. of thing, which is, you know, <laughs> very much what you would think of that, that playful, uh, occasionally off-color sense of humor from from John Waters. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, John Waters is such a cult icon of American trash cinema that you have to kind of love him for reaching out at this time, specifically to make sure that you have a wonderful winning ace in the hole when it comes to attracting younger and younger audiences. I think that's wonderful too. Yeah, and I mean we've we've you, we've talked a lot today about the diversity and I think most people when they hear the term diversity they're thinking of uh racial diversity but I mean ultimately we are a comprehensive art museum covering a wide number of geographies and time periods through history. I would say, you know, Currently, there's a greater lens and focus on people of color, women. But at the end of the day, we're we're trying to make sure that there's something there for everyone. Any way that we can talk to you, reach you, that's definitively high on our priority list as an institution. I think you feel the same way about the word diversity as I do about the word social justice. Because even though I've adopted social justice as a word to describe my podcast, what I mean when I say that is way more than just Black Lives Matter, BIPOC Lives Matter. It's about more than racism, ableism, feminism. It's about so many more issues internationally, globally. It's as much about totalitarianism and fascism as it is about what we're doing on a microcosmic scale every day. But I wondered, how are you going to look at 
what you're doing with the Baltimore Museum of Art going forward. Are your plans to continue to work in this space? Do you have any secret aspirations to become a curator? <laughs> no. <laughs> thank, thank you. I, I, must, I must be doing a good job of representing the institution. You um, are. You absolutely are. One of our former trustees, I believe he was an attorney for many years. And uh, once he retired from his partnership, he ended up writing several history books. Um, currently, I'm, I'm a investment manager. Uh, I love I love identifying great companies and investing in them. Um, so I continue to love and enjoy my day job. But I think it's like so many things in life, there's there's yin and yang. And so being involved with the Baltimore Museum of Art is a way for me to think in a different way. There are definitely a number of items that come from running businesses that I think make me a more astute trustee. So I would say, you know, as far as things like becoming a curator and whatnot, maybe when I'm in my 50s or 60s, I'll go back to school to to try to get the credentials to pursue that. But for right now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I'm doing professionally, but thank you. <laughs> thank you. No, I just wondered because you describe it so beautifully. Your passion for the exhibits is so clear. So yeah, a passion for the exhibits and, and an enthusiasm and excitement for, for the city of Baltimore. You and I were, were chatting previously about the extremes of social strata in Baltimore. I very much want to be working with institutions and people that can find ways to empower everyone in this city. And I, I think I, I think we're making a dent there with this institution. But but you know, I'm I'm very optimistic about Baltimore and trying to make it the greatest city it can be. I wish you every luck with your endeavors to do so because it is a very worthwhile mission and I think this is a wonderful museum and a wonderful thing that you're doing. So how can people get involved with the Baltimore Museum of Art and reach out and learn more about your wonderful collections? Well, I love to see as many people passing through the front door as possible. Normally, I would tell you just show up at 10 Art Museum Drive in Baltimore, Tuesday through Sunday, but unfortunately we have COVID restrictions. So really the best thing for anyone to do right now is visit artbma.org. That's the museum's website. You'll be able to see a number of our offerings, whether they be online. I know we're doing arts kits distribution at Lexington Market and Greenmount Community Center. But I'd also say follow us on Facebook. A lot of our videos, which you might have to kind of navigate through the website to find, we periodically post lectures, gallery tours, and that sort of thing on Facebook. So those would be the two biggest resources I'd point people to at this time. All right. I am joining Facebook right now as we speak. Because I did not realize that. That makes my life a lot easier. Thank you. And pass the good word on to all of your friends, too. Yeah. So any final words, any plugs for our listeners? I think I've done enough to promote <laughs> the museum. I, I think, you know, all I can say to our listeners is 
I think some people might look at something like an art museum and think, what does this have to do with social equity, social justice, social inclusivity? But the reality is the roots of racism, ableism, sexism, they run deep, they run everywhere. So I've had a lot of passion about this institution. I'd encourage others to do whatever they can for Baltimore or their communities as well. Excellent words to live by. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's excellent to spend some time with you here today. You too. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.